Welcome to another episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Each and every week, we provide you with the most actionable macro content out there. I'm Andrea Steno, and uh, this week, I'm without my buddy, Alfonso Picacello. He is basically somewhere in southern Italy without Wi-Fi. Uh, so instead of Alfonso, I've brought in some reinforcement from the Blockworks family. And it's my great pleasure to host uh, the show of the week together with you, Jack Farley, the host of the Ford Guidance Podcast. Listen to that, by the way. It's a great podcast. Welcome to uh, to you as well, Jack. Thanks, Andres. Great to be here. I'm no Alfonso, but I will do my best. I have to say, you know, I'd like to just set some new ground rules here on the macro trading floor. Number one, uh, bank reserves are money. Number two, you have if you have pizza, it, ha- it has to have chicken on it. And number three, <laughs> cappuccinos can only be drunk uh, in the afternoon. Wow. I don't think we should allow Alfonso to listen to this. <laughs> but good stuff. I mean, uh, I wanted to, to talk to you a bit, a bit about what happened this week. Um, and one thing I noted was the very direct statement from Jay Powell uh, at the ECB conference earlier this week. Uh, we are recording the 30th of um, June, by the way. And um, he basically said that we should expect some pain more or less directly, right? Uh, what do you make of what you said, Jack? It, it was kind of a direct message to us, right? Wasn't it? It was very direct. I, I think Powell has been crystal clear over the past few months that inf- their mandate to curb inflation is unconditional. That's an you know, exact quote from one of their monetary policy reports. And when, what struck me was a reporter asked, Powell said, she said, oh, Paul Krugman said that the greatest threat is is the recession because uh, you know, inflation would fall too quickly. And Powell essentially said, we'd like it if that happened. We'd like it if, if, rece- if uh, inflation <laughs> fell. Obviously, he's not welcoming a recession. But I think Powell is sending a crystal clear message to the market that all we care about is inflation. Now, whether that it will prove to be true, we will see. But uh, the message cannot be disputed. I mean, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, The big question now is whether all of the people expecting a Fed pivot, uh, because that's more or less a consensus within, say, nine, 12 months from now, whether they will be proven wrong. Um, Because, I mean, you had a very fun experience this week. Um, Even people who usually don't like lower interest rates. They're calling for a Fed pivot now. Please explain that. <laughs> yeah, on Forward Guidance, I spoke to Ronnie Sheffala and Mark Valak of Incrementum AG, and they are investors who really devoted their, their time to reading about, investing in, and, and writing about hard assets. So that's gold and Bitcoin. And they are hardliners of the Austrian economic school. They think that managed interest rates by central banks are uh, invalid. They want a free market for interest rates. And both of them are expecting a recession. Both of them, uh, Ronnie, thinks that re- the recession is already here and mm. that the Federal Reserve will pivot sh- uh, in due time shortly over the next few months. And perhaps, you know, it's not a bad idea to pivot. So I'm thinking if the hardline school of Austrian economics, <laughs> if they're calling on the Fed to pivot, I mean, who who is left who thinks that the Federal Reserve uh, will continue to be hawkish other than perhaps uh, Jay Powell? Maybe you, Jack. <laughs> You've been pretty vocal on this, at least at least in uh, conversations with me. But uh, I mean, I, I also struggle to find um, uh, anyone left in that camp. Basically, um, if you look at if you look at the market pricing, right? Uh, already within um, yeah, say nine months from now, the market is starting to price in rate cuts. So it is a consensus story. Uh, yes, it is. The the inversion in the euro dollar curve uh, has widened substantially even over this week, which is interesting given the, the hawkish rhetoric. I would say it's it's interesting. Like 
um, what do you think? Do you think that the Fed will pivot? They're, yeah, they're, they're basically the terminal rate is now, I think, in December of 2022, meaning the, the market is implying, again, it's not a prediction, that the Fed will hike aggressively till December and then it will have to, to cut on average. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, I think Francis Donald, um, who we had on this show uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, made made a brilliant historical study on on the Federal Reserve in this regards. Um, she basically showed that the average time between the last hike and the first rate cut um, in the cutting cycle uh, is around seven to eight months. Uh, that's not a lot, um, but still, uh, if if we assume that they will hike all the way until December, we should probably expect them to at least pause. Um, for like six, seven, eight months before they move on to rate cuts. So I think it's pretty early to expect rate cuts by, I don't know, early spring next year, if, if that's already the case. At least there's an implied probability of that happening already, right? Um, so no, I, I, I think the timeline is slightly stretched, but I mean, everything post-COVID has sort of happened in like lightning fast pace right so it could could be that the pivot is is also going to happen in a lightning fast pace this right this time around um it, it's tricky it's a tricky call right now but i think at least it's interesting to see what's happening in the in the long end of the uh under the uh, of the dollar bond curve right um because it is probably one of the first signals that you should look for lower bond yields uh 10 years and out um when um when assessing the federal reserve outlook one two years out because as soon as the far end of the curve starts rallying um in bond price terms then i think it's more feasible to think of the fed pivoting mm. and why is that andreas Ultimately, I think bond markets dictate um, the pace to a large extent. Um, it is very tricky to deliver a lot of rate hikes if the market uh, dislike it. Um, so by the end of the day, as long as the market sort of copes with the rhetoric, um, as long as markets keep uh, repricing interest rates in a higher direction, then I think the Fed is f fairly comfortable delivering rate hikes. But as soon as they see a big inversion, they will have to at least consider pausing. It's interesting. I think over the past 40 years, yield curve inversion often you know, predicts with great frequency, you know, uh, quickly that the Federal Reserve will will pause course. But I think in the mm. 1970s, you know, a decade of secular inflation, the uh, people, even even Arthur Burns was looking at it and said, you know, they, they did not care about the yield curve inversion. They 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 cared if no. they would raise funds until inflation was high. I think it, a lot of this depends, Andreas, on how quickly the economy slows. What's your outlook on that? We've had a lot of economic data coming both from the US and Europe as, as well as China. How, you know, how, how rapidly do you think the economy is slowing? Um, pretty rapidly, actually. Uh, I, I mean, given the move that we've seen in interest rates, um, the size of it, the pace of it has surprised us all, right? Um, but if you look at interest rate-based models for GDP growth, or um, for the PMIs, then I would argue that within six months from now, we are talking about PMI levels between 40 and 45. Uh, that's at least the, the, the historical natural correlation between interest rates and um, PMIs slash GDP growth. Uh, so I guess by the end of this year, we will be in recessionary territory, at least for the manufacturing sector. And that's usually something that the Fed will have to take into account. Uh, so I tend to agree on the timing of uh, what you call the terminal rate, like December this year makes, I think it makes sense um, to sort of uh, price in a pause from there. I just don't buy the pace of the pivot that they will all already start cutting early, early spring. I think that's too early. 
I would agree with you. Uh, you know, I've never traded an interest rate future or option in my life. But if I were to express a view, it probably would be, yeah, shorting the euro dollar futures in like uh, uh, early next, early 2023. Um, and the fact that yeah. you, who's kind of a, you know, uh, definitely on the other side of the camp to me, is recognizing that too, that makes me stronger in my view. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Should we, reckon, should, should we reckon with the fall in commodity prices over the past three weeks? That to me, like, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in this in- inflation central bank hiking story for now. But the, the one thing that sort of cracks that, that makes me question that view is the fall in commodity prices, which has been dramatic. Uh, what, what have you made that? You know, energy, cotton, lumber, everything is just sort of falling off mm. the cliff. Uh, first of all, if we look at industrial metals, um, say copper as um, uh, a gauge of future activity, then it's pretty clear that copper is now in, in a bear market. Um, we are trading below uh, important support levels seen uh, through the pandemic, etc. Um, so I think that to me is a clear signal that uh, the cycle is slowing and it's slowing fast. Uh, I'm a bit more in doubt on whether I fully trust the recent repricing in energy space, uh, simply due to the lack of supply. Um, but it is, of course, interesting, given that uh, Powell more or less explicitly stated at the last press conference uh, that the price at the pump is now important to the Fed. Um, but I mean, by the end of the day, let's assume that we get 15 20% price drop at the pump. Actually, we still have that crack spread widening. So um, a drop in the oil price is not naturally reflected at the pump yet. But when we get that drop at the pump, is that enough for the Fed to pivot? I mean, wouldn't it be kind of a weak signal if just a, a 15, 20% drop in the oil price ultimately led them to pivot? I think we need to see some firmer signals in like more sticky price action uh, within the core, core space of the CPI index before they can really trust the signal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think it's important to um, to just briefly mention the uh, mention the European Central Bank because I, I basically want to go on a rant now. Please, please. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I mean, um, as far as we hear from sources now, uh, they're basically planning to buy more Southern European debt um, when northern european debt matures in the pandemic purchase program um so i mean to me this is probably the worst incentive structure one can think of uh you allow all of the indebted countries to get extra support on behalf of the less indebted sovereigns within the eurozone Uh, so you're almost telling sovereigns to just burn a lot of money right because that that will allow you to get uh an extra sponsor within the ecb I don't think that's a smart move over, say, like a three to five year horizon. It, it obviously calms the market right now. We've seen uh, Italian spreads tightening versus Germany, et cetera. Um, uh, so, I mean, it works, um, but I'm not sure that the incentive structure that you're building within the Eurozone is smart now. Um, we've already have it, had issues uh, in, in this regards, but it's now very explicit. Mm. Yeah. So it's not a good long-term solution, but it is a pretty good short-term solution. Yes, kick the can down the road. <laughs> Typical ECB policy, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, um, otherwise, in, in terms of commodities, um, I think we should move ahead and introduce the guest of the week because um, we've been looking so much forward to introduce Russell Clark, uh, former hedge fund manager. Um, and I mean, his 
theory is quite compelling when it comes to the regime shift that we've seen within the commodity space and uh, per se also within the inflation space. Uh, so let's get to the interview and um, listen to Russell Clark. A big honor to have him on the podcast. Truly. R- Russell is a legend and everything he is a master in everything that I am very interested in, which is China, plumbing of the financial system, macro, short selling. So yeah, great get. And uh, I want to hear what he, have to say, he has to say. It's now time to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. And uh, I'm both honored and proud to welcome uh, Russell Clark this week, an award-winning fund manager now taking a break and writing a sub stack. Russell, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Russell, um, I mean, to me, we are kind of standing at a uh, macro crossroads right now. Uh, no one truly dares to price in an actual regime shift uh, on inflation. We basically just continue to postpone the peak in inflation and market pricing. What do you make of this whole inflation regime shift debate? Do you think that something more structural is sort of brewing below the surface? No, I sort of stepped back from markets last year because I think things, uh, the way things traded had changed a lot. Um, and I think you can see that continuing through into this year as well. Uh, and, you know, the area that I always used to look at were, was currencies. Um, and currencies have been trading oddly for me for the last five years, at least. Um, I, you know, and the question you always suffer, you always struggle with, and I think this is where your, your point is, is if you've had one regime in place for like 40 years, and then there's like a four or five year break where it's not working. Do you commit to this new regime, right? Even though you've only got four years of that happening, or do you, you do you stick with the 40 year regime? Um, and, you know, typically at least this is normally why I think younger fund managers tend to outperform yeah, during regime changes while uh, the older guys continually get, um, you know, continually get whipsawed now of position. I think a really good example of that, um, which I think probably, I I want to talk about currencies, but I think giving an idea of how fund managers can get really bent out of shape. um, I know certainly when I started uh, in the markets around 2000, uh, everyone was always bearish bonds, always bearish bonds all the way. All the way until probably the last couple of years, because <laughs> suddenly people realize, oh, yeah, bonds are super safe, even though yields now are super low, right? Uh, the number of hedge funds used to blow up, surely, in JGBs in my career were just innumerable. Uh, and now everyone's <laughs> like, oh, no, I got to be buying bonds because the yield at uh, JGB at 1.2% such great value, right? And so you get this mindset shift, mind. Uh, set shift, but I think you know what you what I'm talking about is that every fund manager who grew up in the sort of 70s and 80s just never wanted to buy bonds because that was a graveyard for investors in the 60s and 70s. And anyway, it takes a long time to get older guys out of that mindset. Anyway, that's sort of what I'm trying to say. I think we have shifted. A currency regime has shifted, and it's very difficult to accept. Mm. I even I struggle to accept it, but I can give you the reasons why it's changed, and then we can. And then if you've got guts, I would probably say young with no money, so you've got nothing to lose, you can take on this trade if you want to. 
<laughs> Sounds good, Russell. Uh, I mean, I, I personally still struggle um, with the current inflation regime since I am basically born and raised in, in markets with the zero interest rate policy regimes. Um, so to me, this is very tricky uh, to, to figure out. And uh, I also struggle um, to understand the current market pricing of central banks probably due to me being born and raised in, in a uh, zero environment. But I would like to hear your thoughts on why we've changed regime within the FX space. Is macro back in FX? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, because um, I've been thinking about it and I think I've, I've got the, the best way to explain it uh, in a way that I think people can embrace uh, is to take a very super long view on market history. And I think people will then be able to embrace the idea a bit better. So if we go back to sort of the beginning, the very beginnings of uh, a global economy and industrialized economy, so neoclassical, so 1910 through to 1930s, 1940s, that type of period before Keynesian economics took off. Um, you know, you had this period of credit growth through the 20s, right? And then the Great Depression came. And in that period, what you saw was that the countries that devalued first did relatively well, okay, relatively well. But there was a huge negative factor to that, which was what uh, broadly became known as beggarly neighbor policies. So if one country devalues, yes, they do well for a while, but actually they're just spreading deflationary pressure back through the rest of the world. And at some point, other countries will then devalue against them. And what you get is this deflationary cycle, depressionary cycle, where nothing can really change, right? And, you know, the fiscal policy of the time was one of balanced budgets, you know, austerity, uh, you know, compared, being competitive in the international marketplace, right? And then what happened with World War II and the launch of Keynesian, uh, Keynesian economic policy, and also I think the after a, what had been a pretty shitty sort of can I swear on this? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's fine. But uh, pretty bad sort of 30 years, the world sort of came together and said, you know what, we need something different, right? And what we saw then over the next uh, sort of from 1940 through to the late 70s was the idea of fixed exchange rates that don't devalue. And it was very important that the US didn't devalue in this period, okay? We needed someone to act as the anchor. And the adjustment then for economies became one of government policy, fiscal spend, you know, uh, a lot more control over the economy and also an emphasis on uh, improving the, the, the uh, experience of the, of the worker, particularly relative to corporate. So you saw very high corporate tax rates, rapidly increasing minimum wages. So I would really call what we... So, Pre-World War II was a period that favored capital over labor. And the Great Depression was really about falling real wages. And the post-World War II period was really one where we favored labor over capital. We looked for full employment and rising wages at all times. And then with Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, the collapse of communism, uh, we then moved back, moved back, to a period of favoring capital over labor. And what that means in the FX world is one that devaluation is the way you generate inflation and you adjust your economy back to make it competitive in the market. 
but you have exactly the same problem that we saw in the Great Depression, but much more elongated over a longer period of time, which is that you can't generate sustained inflation because the workers aren't really seeing sustained wage increases. And when they do, the currency market then adjusts it down. So globally, you could never generate the inflation that we used to see. That's the regime, right? That's the regime change. Now, what you'll get here, and this is, I think, why uh, I'm going to say guys like you and me, I'm going to speak for you, but, you know, guys of a certain generation, what, what they really struggle with this idea is we're talking about political change, right? Why did the system change? And what I try and say is because the votes weren't there anymore, right? So after the Great Depression, people voted for left-wing governments. Labor governments came in across the board in the post-World War II period, and these ideas were implemented. And then after the 70s, when they stopped working, unions became too strong, stuff didn't work, people voted for these sort of neoclassical policies, and I would say from 2016 onwards, we had a big shift. Um, you know, so I'll just finish this sort of to say why I think we're in a regime change. There are three things that happened in 2016, which I think uh, have indicated a regime change. And we now see more and more signs of it everywhere we look. So the first thing was China was coming in, was starting to see capital outflows, had overpriced property market, um, corporate margins were declining. And in the classic model that uh, I'd grown up with, their answer to their problems was a big devaluation, Asian financial crisis style, you know, 30, 40% devaluation, restore competitiveness, get their property market back to sort of reasonable levels, generate some inflation, and away we go. Of course, the problem is if China devalued by 30, 40%, the rest of the world would probably head into a great depression of some sort. And, you know, but that would have been the, the traditional model. What China did was they came in and implemented capital controls, uh, did a big fiscal push, kept property prices high, and basically said, no, we don't accept this, this model anymore. And strangely, I think sort of dictatorships you know, with no elections are actually more sensitive to the well, common welfare of the average person because unlike the states, you know, if they had something like the Capitol Hill riot in China, it would quickly snowball into a massive revolution slash civil war. While in the States, somehow you can have what Trump did and the country continues to function of a sort. Um, the other thing that happened in 2016, of course, was the election of Trump, who was a big spender, you know, and, and brought in tariffs, which again is much more post-World War II type policy. And we have Brexit, which was, of course, a rejection of uh, the UK in the EU and all the sort of Really, I would say the sort of, you know, uh, free trade, free capital, free labor movement policies. Uh, and so what I'm saying is politically we've changed. And the anchor this time is not really the U.S. The anchor is China. China, which has the largest auto market, is definitely the largest market for commodities. You know, and their policies have really changed a lot. Um and I would say if, you, if you're trying to buy into this story, I've sort of bought into it, but you have to read a little bit more. Um, one of the things I started to think about is what do the Chinese planners read that I don't read, right? What, how do they think in a way that I don't think because I grew up in a very different era? And so I thought about it, thought about it, and suddenly I realized it's the Communist Manifesto, right? Now, you can get that in any bookshop. It should be quite cheap. So I went and read it. 
And the one point that I really took from it, which I found really interesting, is the the way they look at economics is that labor is a commodity, okay? And in a capitalist economy, you're trying to get all input costs as low as possible to generate the highest margins, right? So the Chinese mentality is that overproduction and falling commodity prices is the enemy of the worker. It's a very different mindset to where we've had this sort of get costs down, interest rates down, that's going to generate the best outcome for society. This sort of communist planning idea is rising commodity prices, rising inflation, and restricting capacity is the answer for uh, a sort of communist planning. And weirdly, if you look at Chinese economic policy since 2016, it's all about being restricting capacity, rising commodity prices. And this is really what blew my mind is like, why were they promoting higher iron ore prices? Why were they promoting higher uh, coal prices when they're the biggest importer? Why are they not acting like Japan who always had policies to keep those prices as low as possible? And I suddenly realized they come from a very different mental place. And so what this implies to come to the end and let you sort of ask questions because I'm proud on is that we now do have a change, a political change, right? which is now affecting the economy and does mean that inflation will structurally be higher. Uh, bond yields, I think, are going higher. Uh, and I think physical commodities are going to outperform almost everything for the foreseeable future. Let's start with the repercussions for the um, FX space. Um, you talk about uh, the risk of rising commodities, uh, as sort of a structural regime shift. Uh, on inflation and um, a couple of countries um, currently stuck in a mess due to that uh, exact um, rising uh, commodity space um, are Germany and Japan. Uh, so talk about the yen and the euro in the context of potentially rising commodities. Yeah. So when I think about, so if you accept the uh, original thesis, um, mm. I, I must say I've been extremely surprised uh, by really the the slowness of the ECB and the BOJ to reacting to rising food prices in particular. Um, you know, so China, I think China is by far the biggest food consumer in the world, and their market now is seeing food prices globally, which is why they've risen so much. And when I look back at previous food spikes. What we saw was a reaction from central banks to try and mitigate that. And even the Fed's been very slow to react to it, in my view. Um, and so that's been surprising. And what that means, I think, from a from a currency market perspective, um, is that actually I think central banks, I used to not think this, but I do think it now, they do have a choice in where they where they price their exchange rates. China has chosen a strong exchange rate, so has Russia. Europe and Japan, for the time being, have chosen weak exchange rates. Now, the political issue there is at some point, voters are going to wake up and get very angry at that. And we're starting to see that in Japan, strangely, uh, which is why I think the back end of the JGB market is really selling off. Um, mm. And, you know, the politics for the BOJ, I think, is starting to change. So, but, you know, it's it's up to them. I mean... The thing about it, why I think this currency change is going to start really becoming a bigger issue is 
if you think about what the Chinese are doing, keeping this the, the exchange rate strong and still getting reasonable growth, I mean, it's going to be a bit weakish this year, but they're going to grow their market. They are taking away one of the biggest political weapons of the U.S. The biggest political, political weapon the U.S. always had was having the largest single market for any asset, right? So they could do trade deals from a position of strength, right? They no longer have that position of strength. China is by far the biggest market for autos, the biggest market for movies, biggest market for almost any product now. And actually, this type of currency market manipulating, you know, keeping a strong currency actually adds to that weapon for the for China, right? And it's I think why you're seeing, you know, even though the West the West has been very anti Russia on its invasion of oh. Ukraine, you have not seen that policy really being. Uh, backed up by much of the emerging market world. How about the dollar in this scenario? Um, I basically took note of the sanctions uh, being imposed on on Bank of Russia. Um, and I think that could be a potential game changer myself uh, for the role of the dollar going forward. Um, do you think other countries will basically freak out due to the sanction sanction imposed on on Bank of Russia? And could it um, ultimately lead to uh, the dollar taking another role in the global economic uh, ecosystem? I mean, it does make the it does making short treasuries a, a, a much more attractive uh, trade. Uh, it's certainly been a better trade than short dollar this year. Mm. Um, you know, so the the way I'm thinking about currencies, right, um, is uh, in this sort of new regime that I think is coming into place, is that the less the government cares about corporate profitability, the stronger the currency will be. So if you mm. look at like China, Chinese market, the Russian market is, because uh, of sanctions, is not a, a real market per se anymore, but... If you look at like the Chinese market, stock market's done very poorly for the last 10 years. Uh, but when you and you look at what they've done to Alibaba or Tencent, you know, they, they don't care about profits and mm. asset maximization is not a key priority, obviously. In fact, I suspect reducing income inequality is a key priority. Now, when we talk about the dollar, right, in the US, uh, I think when you look at where the voting pan is that Uh, both Trump and Biden have been targeting the Rust Belt. Uh, that has mm. been the big swing area. Um, and that area, you know, corporate profitability is not that important from. But the problem with the US political system, is, if anyone who pays any attention to it, is that it's such an expensive electoral system that it's very difficult to, you know, to perceive a world where suddenly US politicians don't care about profitability, um, which would lead me to being more bearish on the dollar because they'll be ultimately looking to you know boost asset values for a much weaker exchange rate policy you would suspect the only issue with that like i said is it's what voters want and if voters are getting very hacked off with high commodity prices you know you could well see a, a change there where they do, do look for a strong dollar i think this is what i think i've talked this idea through a few fund managers a few friends Most of them hate it and reject it. And the, I think the reason why, and I get this, is that you used to have a very simple system. Currency became overvalued, current account deficit blew out, you mm. know, trade trade deficit blew out, that country's going to devalue, you know, and then the stock market would do better. And that was the system we had in place for 34 years. Uh, and very easy, very predictable, easy to understand. And now I'm coming to them and saying, no, actually, you need to go and look at 
you know, what are voters doing? What are winning policies? You might call them populist, but if they win elections, mm. they're more likely going to be implemented. The UK is a very good example of that. Uh, Conservative Party policy here is much more like Labour Party policy than it's ever mm. been. Uh, you, the Boris Johnson government is probably more Labour than we've seen for 40 years. Um, so dollar is tricky. I, I actually think currencies are probably dead money. Uh, you know, I just don't see the the huge moves that we used to see. Um, yeah. I really, you can maybe make a bit here and there, um, but absent some bigger political change, I mean, look, the sanctions they put on Russia and the freezing of the foreign reserves, you know, historically the ruble should have devalued massively mm. uh, and it hasn't, right? They've chosen to have a strong currency. So if that if the ruble is not doing that, I, I can't see where currencies can really move in a big way. It only will happen if China suddenly decides they're going to devalue massively, uh, and I think it's very unlikely. If we kind of assume that other big central banks freak out post uh, these sanctions being imposed on Bank of Russia. Um, Bank of China, People's Bank of China, I think they have a bit more than one trillion uh, worth of US treasuries on their balance sheet um, and so on. Uh, what would they buy instead if they get scared of holding US treasuries? Would that be physical gold or something else? I've never really been much of a gold bull personally. Uh, you know, it, it attracts the weirdest, worst type of investors, <laughs> historically speaking. Yeah. Uh, And normally very poor analysis. Uh, you know, whenever you talk to a gold bull, they go, "Yeah, gold always goes up in value. You know, dollars fall ninety nine percent over whatever." <laughs> Can you tell me about this twenty year bear market from nineteen eighty to two thousand? You know, where you know you underperformed the market by like ninety odd percent. You know, what do I? What, how do I know that's not going to happen again? They go, oh, "Just ignore that twenty year period." And I'm like. You know, if you're a professional fund manager, 20-year underperformance is not acceptable uh, for anyone. So uh, gold bulls typically ignored that. Um, <laughs> however, you know, what, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, it, now that I can see a political change to favor labor over capital, uh, which I think will be ongoing, and that ultimately try and drive reduced income inequality, which I think has become a political priority, Uh, it does make me much more upbeat on commodities. Mm. Um, one of the big problems I always have with gold was it was very expensive relative to other commodities, particularly food commodities, things like wheat, corn. Mm. Uh, that is beginning to change now. Uh, those commodities have risen, so that disparity in price is not not too bad. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of gold and oil, for example, it's normally been a 10 to 1 type ratio. Hmm. 10 to 1, you know, and now it's getting back to sort of more reasonable, whereas a few years ago, gold looked hopelessly expensive versus energy. That's no longer the case anymore. Hmm. So um, if we assume that you're right on your thesis, uh, that um, labor will be put back in the limelight compared to capital, basically, from a political standpoint, what's the trade then, Russell? I say it's very hard to go past physical commodities, um, mm. you know, because when I look back at the sort of regime change that happened in the 80s uh, under Thatcher and Reagan, what we really saw there was a reduction of uh, 
wages and labor power. And that kept commodity prices in check. You can't really raise commodity prices if if the average worker is not seeing wage increases. That mm. makes sense. Uh, and that's what really, so the unemployment was used as, as a sort of hammer to get commodities down. And that was a vote winner and that worked. Now what you see is that, uh, you, what you're seeing is mostly with universal basic income, but stimulus checks and other things like that. It's governments are desperately giving money to the, to the workers that suffer the most from rising commodities. But actually, this is going to create that upward. It's very much like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It means that the demand for the commodities will stay strong. Mm. I don't really see supply response coming. So I prefer physical commodities. I would not buy the stocks except no. in some exceptional circumstances because if this, if this analysis is correct, we should see corporate tax rates rise. We should also see interest rates rise, bond yield rises. So that should be creating very heavy headwinds for uh, corporates, including commodity miners, commodity extractors, which is something you're really seeing in the oil and gas space, for example. Um, So physical commodities, the problem is there's very few physical commodities you can own or hold uh, without large expenses. Gold is probably one of the best. Uh, I, I love the uh, ags. I think ags is you know, a buyer dip type of market. The problem with ags is that they're extremely volatile uh, and liquidity disappears. I mean, goes literally to zero uh, in sell-offs. So you, you, know, you would need to be a very big specialist in that. Um, yeah, you know, and, you know, and if you're talking about commodities, I mean, one commodity, one currency, uh, sorry, currencies, one currency I looked at uh, which sort of really highlighted this changing environment when is the Aussie dollar. If you mm. run the Aussie dollar versus its terms of trade, you know, it should be north of parity with the US dollar, maybe 120, something like that. Mm. If you look at things like thermal coal, wheat, uh, iron ore, all these big exports, and it hasn't followed it. It's booking the biggest trade surpluses ever. Mm. Uh, but when you start thinking from sort of a political aspect, uh, the weakness, the relative weakness of Aussie dollar makes far more sense makes sense yeah it absolutely does so basically to sum up russell you like to belong physical commodities into this structural change uh on in terms of the view on on labor versus capital uh, and on the short leg it sounds as if you like to be short long bonds for example the tlt um as as a reflection of that but one thing i would like to f- um uh, pick your brain on ultimately is equities in this scenario um being long commodities versus being short um the long bond makes for a kind of tricky scenario for equities doesn't it yeah i think equities are dead money for like 10 years or so um you know it's it's very uh, you, you, there may be there may be a buy case for Japanese equities potentially, uh, purely because they haven't had an inflationary impulse for a long time, and this may be able to to change it. Um, uh, but you know, against that problem, you know, so there may be something there. Um, I mean, Japan is the market that I know the best. Uh, so believe mm. it or not, I went to high school for a year in Japan back in 91, uh, did a degree in Japanese. Um, and the thing that, well, you know, 
what I've always pointed out to people about like this inflation deflation argument, right, is governments can create inflation tomorrow. Mm. Do. You see it in emerging markets all the time. You suddenly uh, increase public service uh, employers, uh, employees, and then give them like a 10% pay increase every year for 10 years. You've got mm. inflation. Yeah. No problem. But no one's done that for like in the West for 10, 15 years. Japan hasn't done it since 1994. Last time there was a big pay increase for public sector workers. Um, and that's a political choice. It's 100% political choice driven by what voters want. Now, you know, five, six years ago, I always said, you know, the UK is not going to start raising wages for public sector employees. Um, today, I'd be surprised if the NHS workers didn't get like 10% pay increases for the next few years going forward. I'd be surprised because uh, mm. to me, it looks like a vote winner. I don't see uh, a party going to the electorate saying, you know, what well, NHS is underfunded, workers have really struggled, we're going to give them a pay increase. Um I don't see those. I don't see a party doing that, particularly losing. Uh, I think I think they do very well in the comparative uh, uh, districts up in the north. And the mm. same in the states. So you know, you know, Japan, which hasn't seen any sort of wage increases for 30, 40 years, suddenly get wage increases. Maybe Japanese assets do well, and they, unlike uh, the US or the UK, there's not very much goodwill on the balance sheet there. That has to be written off. If that makes sense. Final question for you, now that we talk Japan. Um, we have a big ongoing debate on the yield curve control from Bank of Japan. Do you think Bank of Japan will ultimately fold and allow the yield curve control to go? So, I mean, the reality of central banks is we've become conditioned to you know, think they're all powerful. You know, but, you know, whenever you, whenever I've, force myself to read any of their research, either the stuff they publish or stuff they did before they joined central banks. You've all, I've always been extremely underwhelmed by the intellectual uh, quality of their thinking. Um, it's, it's just so weak. Um, you know, and, you know, I think the, the, the brutal reality is they are a lagging indicator because basically they do what the politicians will allow them to do. Mm. So, The way I think about central banks is that when Thatcher and Reagan sort of came in, they knew that they knew they knew they needed to get interest rates up. They needed to have a recession, right? They need to create a recession and unemployment. It's better to give that responsibility to an independent central bank, right? Mm. So they can at least try and reflect deflect some of that that uh, political problems that would come back to them. Um, but the the bond market, which I think is You know, the, really, the powerful has always basically just told the central banks what to do. Uh, if you look at the Fed or you look at any of them, if 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 bond yields are going up, right, it's basically telling them that their interest rates are too low, and then they'll find mm. a reason to raise interest rates. And when bond yields are going down, they go, "Oh, actually, you know, we're we're over tight," and they find a way to 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 get loose again. Mm. You know, and the whole QE thing was. Basically, long bonds were so low, they were like, oh my God, how do we, how can we, you know, respond to what the bond market is telling us? But the bond market was, I think, accurately reflecting the economic uh, and political system that we're in. And I think it's now reflecting. And if you look at Japan, I mean, for me, you know, I made a lot of money being long JGBs, uh, you know, uh, from time to time. 
the tree there. I never understood why people didn't take it on. Uh, <laughs> but you, when I look at the long end of the JGB market, they have been very weak ever since the beginning of COVID, right? So in COVID, which was for me a deflationary event, the JGB market did not respond to that. It already sold off. Um, hmm. And so, you know, you now have a pretty long period where the JG mark, JGB market has changed the way it's acting. And hmm. if you even, you know, Kuroda comes out and says we're going to buy unlimited amount of bonds, the 30-year JGB, I think last time I looked, it was like one three one four, hmm. which is the highest level for a, a long time. Um, you know, and like I said, people are unwilling to short JGBs because there was so much capital in it for the last 40 years. Yeah. It looks to me like that's the JGB market, the long day JGB market doesn't care what Carita says today or tomorrow or even next year. They're looking at where am I going to be 10, 15 years from now? And I think they recognize that the world has changed. Um, so they might do yield curve control for a while. But the market is, as long as the JGBs are selling off, I would probably be uh, of the view that the end is coming sooner. I think that's the perfect way to conclude uh, this interview. Thanks so much, Russell, for joining the macro trading floor. It was an honor to host you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good luck uh, trading these markets. I think they're going to be tricky, but uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck. Thank you. What an interview with Russell Clark. Um, so let's recap his trade a bit here. Uh, he's suggesting to go long fiscal gold. Um, you can do that, for example, via the PHAU ETF, uh, the Wisdom Tree Physical Gold ETF. And then he suggests to do that in a package with a short TLT position. So basically short the long bond in the uh, dollar yield curve. Uh, quite the package, um, Jack. Uh, what do you make of his long-term theory, uh, inflation remaining at high limbs than what we've seen and um, the package uh, of his trade here? Well, when I first, I listened to the interview, when I first heard it, I thought that the sort of commodities he would be long were stuff like copper, stuff like soybeans, those sorts of commodities yeah. that are key to production. Uh, but because the economy is slowing, you know, even though I'm a, I'm a card-carrying inflationista, I was I had a few questions about that. But now I, I learned that it's gold and short TLT. I mean, uh, yeah, there there are aspects that I like to it. I'm I'm just thinking through it now. Let's see, you have real rates, and what investing in gold mm. is sort of a proxy betting that real rates will go down. So, uh, but then you're also putting a short a, a nominal on top of that. So, what is sort of the the bet there? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of an embedded hedge, right? Um, in the sense that um, this is like a directional bet on inflation going higher, but also um, nominal bond deals going higher at the same time. But um, by the end of the day, he's um, at least slightly long the spread between the two, right? So he hopes that inflation rallies more um, than, than long bond yields. Uh, and I actually tend to think that it's a pretty decent setup if we have like a five to 10 year structural period um, of, of higher inflation than what we've seen um, over the past decade. Uh, and I mean, I think the pendulum is swinging in the wrong way for this trade. If I look at it on a tactical level, uh, we've seen a big repricing higher in in, uh, in real interest rates over the past, say four to six weeks. Um, but still, um, from a structural perspective, I like this trade. I would like to have this uh, basically in a box that I cannot, uh, touch over the next 10 years, because I think it will be a great trade if, if you look at it um, in 10 years. Right. So what would have to happen for this trade to not work? 
uh, I think if, if the Federal Reserve um, basically moves very aggressively ahead over the next two to three months uh, to really ensure that the front end of the yield curve uh, adjusted for inflation trades in se- severely positive territory, I mean, say, plus one, two, three percent, um, trying to bring um, the nominal yield level in the front clearly ahead of the inflation curve, then I think this trade will suffer um, on a tactical basis, simply due to the fact that uh, it usually leads to a bear market for um, for gold when we have a very strong repricing of the real interest rate in a positive direction. And secondly, since uh, the long end of the yield curve, as we've already debated in the intro to, to today's podcast, um, tends to reflect a very firm rhetoric and tight rhetoric from the Federal Reserve via a an inversion or a flattening of the yield curve, right? Uh, so I'm not sure that I like the timing per se, um, but I'm very fond of the view that we will have to um, experience severely negative real interest rates for decades to get rid of the debt load um, and that inflation is is headed higher on a structural level. I think that that's a good thesis over the next five, 10 years. What about if the uh, a, a rapid tightening of monetary conditions does cause a recession? You know, gold does tend to rally during a recession. Uh, that's what that part of the leg will will do well. But then, if we do have a true recession that that moderates inflation, the short TLT trade will not work out well. No, true, um, and I think that's a fair reflection, Jack. If, if we look at gold during recessions, um, I think there is at least a risk of a gold sell-off in the run-up to that recession. Usually what we see just prior to recessions is some sort of dollar liquidity event uh, where the dash for cash uh, becomes the main topic in in markets. We also saw that briefly um, just ahead of the sort of confirmation of of the pandemic recession in uh, February, March 2020. We had a a big sell-off in gold. I remember being, I mean, way too long gold into that scenario. Um, uh, so it, it it hurt a lot when we got that dash for cash event. Uh, it only lasted like a couple of weeks uh, and then gold started uh, rebounding, right? But I, I would be on the look for such an event before I really um, consider adding to my own uh, long gold uh, position. Uh, I already have a small percentage of my tactical portfolio in gold, uh, but I'm, I'm not really keen on adding to it before I, I see... Um, some kind of um, interesting uh, retracement pattern that can, that I can buy into. Uh, Andreas, are there any trades on on your horizon that you're thinking about? Well, <laughs> it's it's a tricky environment right now, and um, I basically end up in the same conclusion each week. Right now, I I, I still like being long dollar. Um, so, <laughs> I, I mean, I've added to that position um, uh, recently. Um, and there are various um, proxy ETFs um, where, where you could be long dollar versus a basket of G10 currencies. I'm a bit in doubt uh, on, on whether the Japanese yen could start performing if we get a true recession, right? Uh, but otherwise, I like being long, long dollar versus most of the G10. G10 basket. Um, and given the message that we've received from uh, at least sources within the European Central Bank this week that they are contemplating um, moving ahead with this um, uh, program designed to to keep the southern European part of the um, Eurozone afloat, then I think being short uh, net net euro dollar is, uh, is still a really good trade into the environment that we will be faced with over the next couple of uh, quarters. Should we get a recession, then I also expect the dollar, uh, long dollar position to perform into, into such an environment. Yes, short euro dollar 
F foreign exchange cross the currency, not the euro dollar futures that we were referencing earlier. Just Ex exactly, clear. exactly. Um, so it really interested me when Russell said sort of the action in currencies, it's kind of over. Uh, it's interesting to me. I was curious why he said that given, you know, the pretty big swings that we've had over the past year uh, from the DXY going to 88 to now what? I don't know, 105. And so I, I would, you know, would like your analysis of why Russell thinks that. And then also I want your view on the dollar. Uh, you know, a lot of people are thinking, oh, my God, we have the dollar milkshake now. You, you recently had a, a – yeah. uh, well, Brent, Brent was recently on with Alf on, on Boiler Room. And I don't think we've had – I don't think we've had the milkshake. I, I, I think yep. that the appreciation of the dollar has been what you learn in sort of macroeconomics 101 textbook of the Fed is hiking is more than yeah. the Bank of Japan. So the yen will weaken against the dollar. Whereas what you know we sort of saw in the past 15 years in a post-GFC world was the dollar rallying against emerging market currencies rapidly as uh, you know, dollar-denominated debts are sort of called in when the Fed stopped uh, QE in 2014, for example. So I don't think we've seen the milkshake at all. So I, I want to, uh, yeah, first, what's your take on, on if the action is currencies is over? And two, uh, do you agree that the, the, it's largely due to interest rate differentials, not sort of the milkshake? Yeah, I think you're spot on, Jack. Um, the repricing that we've seen over the past three quarters is uh, interest rate driven. Um, the Federal Reserve was basically the f first of the big central banks, uh, now I'm setting New Zealand aside here, uh, to really move um, and, and do something um, on, on the inflation agenda. Uh, and I think that's been uh, basically the focal point for the dollar. Um, but I'm preparing myself for the milkshake scenario this autumn, uh, because uh, when the Federal Reserve really gets going on the QT process, uh, we should expect dollar liquidity to be removed slowly but surely through through the autumn. And it usually takes a while until uh, the dollar liquidity becomes scarce en enough uh, for the milkshake theory to unfold. Um, I think there are two um, important check marks you need um, to, to consider before the milkshake theory actually happens. Um, first being a material setback for global trade because global trade is um, a liquidity adding um, mechanism in, in, the, in the world of finance. Uh, and then second, that we need a, um, uh, a balance sheet from the Federal Reserve um, slowing month on month. Uh, so we only have one of the two um, uh, right now with a slowing balance sheet, uh, but we, um, we don't really have that clear setback, so negative growth in, in global trade. And I think we will get that during the second half of the year, if I'm right on my um, uh, call for, for global growth. Uh, so with those two um, factors in place during the autumn, I think we should expect the milkshake uh, theory to unfold itself. Uh, so then we should call up Brent Johnson and allow him to explain what's happening at that point. <laughs> we, de we definitely should. So what sort of emerging market currencies do you think are vulnerable? I'm going through the list and, you know, is the Brazilian real going to be weak given that Brazil has tons of oil and oil's in a structural bull market. Is the yuan going to be weak given that, you know, the Chinese has like, you know, trillions and trillions of, of dollar reserves? Like what what is going to be the flashpoint, the sort of canary in the coal mine in terms of a specific emerging market currencies? I think Brazil um, is, oh. is a country I would like to mention, actually, um, since the Brazilian real performed like crazy during uh, the latter part of last year and into the beginning of this year. Um, it has struggled a bit more, at least it's been more rangy lately, uh, if, you, if you set aside the volatility, right? Um, so 
I, I think Brazil is vulnerable um, because I also expect the commodity landscape to take sort of a, a tactical downturn during such a recessionary uh, environment during the autumn. Uh, and uh, I mean, the only reason why the Brazilian real copes this well with the current turmoil uh, that we see uh, around the globe is the commodity sector, right? Uh, so if that final straw breaks, then um, of course the Brazilian real is an easy target, I'd say. If the WTI, if crude oil is at sixty dollars, that's a very different situation for for Brazil. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I ultimately wanted to say, Jack, um, uh, the the comment that received the most likes um, on YouTube last week. Uh, was from a guy stating uh, whether I was on the run because I recorded an, in a new spot each and every week. So it was very important for me to record at home this week. This is my living room. Uh, so no, I'm not on the run, but it was a hilarious comment. I've been traveling a lot over the past few weeks. So thanks for that one. It's it's generally very funny to read the comments on YouTube. I don't know whether you do that on your, on your show, Jack. <laughs> I do. And you know, the comments on my videos, on your videos have been so kind, appreciative. Uh, they they contribute a lot to the discussion. So I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'd say, you know, Andreas, what do you think? Is this, are we in a bull market for macro podcasting? Yeah, definitely. But that's maybe the only bull market right now. <laughs> yeah, because macro is all about being bearish on everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jack, uh, thanks so much for, for joining me this week on the macro trading floor. It was a pleasure to have you here. Andreas, it's been my pleasure. And uh, yeah, everyone for watching, Alf will be back next week. Yeah, thanks for this week, guys, uh, and thanks for the support. Please remember to the, uh, review the show on, on podcast apps. It helps us grow, and it helps us provide this actionable macro content each and every Sunday for free. Thanks for watching.